And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is uh, Tuesday, technically speaking Tuesday, that is, as we kind of get things underway this morning. A lot of things to actually cover here over the last uh, really kind of 24 hours. Of course, you know, uh, Kamala Harris made her trip down to Guatemala yesterday to talk about immigration and, you know, basically telling people not to come to the U.S. because you will be turned away. This is kind of an interesting you know, thing because, you know, the, the, the surge at the border has been a big problem this year. Of course, that's the immigration issue that has really continued to be a, 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 an issue really now over the last two administrations. And, you know, this has really been something that, you know, has had a lot of attention, a lot of focus, and will continue to do so. Now, whether this, uh, you know, does anything or not um, in terms of stemming the tide of migrants trying to come across the border, uh, that's really yet to be foretold. This is really kind of just a, a, a trip to, to make a statement at this point because she was put in charge of the immigration, but really hasn't done much about it until this trip yesterday. So it'll be interesting to see what the lashback on this turns out to be in terms of the immigration issue itself. Um, the other side of this yesterday also, we uh, the G7 announced that they came to an agreement on a global minimum tax. Now, this is an interesting point because this is a commitment and this is the key word, right? Yesterday, a lot of headlines were like, oh, the, U the G7's agreed to a global minimum tax and everybody's going to have to pay this minimum tax of, of uh, you know, based on 15% uh, if you have a 10% gross profit margin. Okay, well, the immediate concern was Amazon. Amazon has, is infamous for not paying income taxes on billions of dollars of revenue, but they run a business model with a very low net profit margin. Their net profit margin is about six and a half, six point seven percent 6.7%. Now, why is that important? Well, that falls underneath the 10% tax, uh, tax level or profit, level, profit margin level that would trigger the 10%, the 15% minimum corporate tax, okay? So despite this commitment, Amazon would still flip through that. So the, the G7 is already aware of this and they're already trying to figure out some language to make sure that Amazon would get included in this. But this is really a non-event. Yesterday, the markets were down just a smidge after the announcement um, because this is really a non-issue. A non and why is that? Well, first of all, let's think about a few things here. First of all, the G7, you have some leaders of countries coming in, uh, sitting down around a big table, having lunch and talking about, hey, we need to have this global minimum income tax. Great. Sounds like a wonderful idea. Who votes for that? I do. Great. We'll have a commitment. That's the key word. A commitment that will work on this idea of having a global minimum income tax. Okay, they then have to go to the G20, then they've got to get the OECD behind it, and then they've got to do what? This becomes the other issue. Every country in the world, these, these are people, right? Janet Yellen does not pass tax law. That has to go to Congress here in the United States. Look, we're fighting over trying to raise taxes versus lower taxes at this point in, in Congress just to try to get some type of spending bill done. Um, Raising taxes has to be done through the legislatures of these countries that actually set tax code. Let me ask you another question. These, company, these countries, 
that are low income tax havens for corporations like Ireland and others. And of course, I even mentioning like places like the Cayman Islands, um, Mar um, Mauritius and, and a lot of other countries that use their status as a tax haven to lower tax rates for individuals. They would all have to agree to this corporate minimum income tax. They're not going to do that because it's going to impact their economics, right? Their, their economy is based upon people bringing businesses there for these low tax rates, for the, avail uh, the ability to mitigate some of the tax consequences for corporations. I know it's a terrible thing, corporate profit margins, it's horrible. But the point is, is that you've got to get all these countries not only to agree to do this, but then also pass the legislation to instill this corporate minimum income tax. The odds of this ever happening are slim, none, and non-existent, slim left town last week so um, you know this you know it all sounds great right we're all going to talk about this stuff and and you know we're gonna have you know net zero emissions by 2050 um, maybe in the US but China's polluting like crazy so I mean until you get everybody on board and which is never gonna happen you're never going to achieve these grand lofty socialistic ideas it, it they sound great right they're all feel-good stuff but in reality, it's just not going to happen. So let's just set that one on the sidelines for a moment. It sounds great, makes good, uh, good headlines. And of course, this gets Janet Yellen in favor with the Biden administration because we're going after the big guys, right? We're going to go tax these big evil corporations. Yeah. Pass it in Congress. Then come talk to me. Then we'll talk about it. How it's going to affect the market. Um, but speaking of that, that is something that we continue to watch here very carefully because corporate profit margins are important at this phase of the cycle. Look, we've had a massive ramp up in earnings over the course of the last really two, two quarters. I've had a very, very sharp increase. In fact, increases in earnings expectations now going out to the end of 2022 is at the highest level on record. So again, everybody's very exuberant about this economic recovery, but even with this massive increase in earnings, valuations for markets are still very stretched. Now, here's the important point about this. We've had the sharpest rate of earnings increases uh, in, in recent history, actually in a long history, and prices are still outstripping those earnings expectations. The only other time that happened to this degree was back in the late 90s. So uh, again, a lot of exuberance in the markets, a lot of exuberance about this economic recovery that we're having. We're about to get, you know, the world's gonna be on fire. The problem, as we continue to talk about, is that very quickly over the course of the next two quarters, that economic growth expectation is going to drop rather sharply because we're gonna start comparing year over year to stronger rates of economic growth. And that's the real key to this as we start talking about this. Second quarter GDP growth is going to be very strong because second quarter of last year was the midst of the economic shutdown. There was no economic activity and economic activity dropped by 30% in a quarter. Then the next quarter, we had a 33% rebound, right? So next quarter, we're going to be comparing against a much stronger economic environment, which is going to lower that rate of growth very sharply. So again, uh, this is really kind of the point that we're getting to. This is, you know, kind of as good as it gets in terms of economics. 
And this is why the market really has been starting to struggle here. Despite the fact that, you know, we've had this buy signal in place, we've talked about markets are pushing up and all-time highs can't quite get there. We closed a little bit lower yesterday. We're going to close, uh, open up a little bit down this morning. Really struggling with these all-time highs here. And the same thing goes for the NASDAQ, which is really kind of an underperforming uh, the S&P is of late. But again, the S&P still kind of pushing up here for a bit. But that buy signal, again, getting very extended here. So, you know, there's there's the, the, the position at this point continues to be that markets are likely about done with this particular rally. And again, doesn't mean we have a major crash. Don't go sell everything in your portfolio and say, oh, Lance told me to sell everything or have a crash. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just saying we've we've pretty much priced in the majority of this current run. We've had a very nice run off these recent lows, have had a nice break up to the upside here price a lot of that in but this morning we're going to talk a little bit more we have our technically speaking report out on the website right now simply go by the website realinvestmentadvice.com but we're going to kind of get into a little bit more of the technical backdrop of where we are in the markets and expectations talking about some things like cpi versus pbi and what does that mean for the markets all that coming up here on the show i'm your host Lance roberts don't go away Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestment.com. InvestmentAdvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. RealInvestmentAdvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Yeah, you have to love headline. Headline on CBC: Vaccination rate slows as the economy struggles to reach herd immunity. This is it's funny headline because yeah, you have about 60, 50 percentish of the population, maybe sixty percent now. You know, kind of pushing up on that number this, that have been vaccinated, right? Um, you've got roughly seventy five percent of the population that is either you know has gotten vaccinated or is going to get vaccinated, then you have about 25% that just say, I'm not getting vaccinated, right? And you're not going to change their minds, period, right? So two points about headlines. One, vaccination rate slows. Well, of course it slows. Um, once you get to the 50% mark, your growth rate in the vaccination rate is going to slow. It's just a function of math. Uh, the second thing is, is that there are a... a, a number of people that are just not going to get vaccinated, right? It's just, that's just part of the deal. Uh, it's, it's, it's in anything, right? There's people that don't get the flu vaccine every year. So I'm one of them. So I don't get the flu vaccine. Um, 
but that's just you know that's just the way economics work right so yes the vaccination rate is going to slow the question is is how many do you need to get to herd immunity right is it 60 percent is it 70 percent is it 80 percent is it 100 percent um, you know, herd immunity is basically to the point to where you've got enough people that are either immune to it, have had the virus and, and are, are now immune to it, or, you know, that you've got enough people vaccinated that it's no longer an issue. Right. So what nobody's specifying yet is exactly what is that herd immunity rate? Because nobody knows. Right. So this is kind of interesting. But look, um, always pay attention to headlines because <laughs> you got to pay attention to the math. Um Sounds good, though. Makes makes good stories. Um, this morning, a couple of things we're getting into, of course, is a little bit about this, about the market and where we are right now. And, and if you take a look, as we were talking about a second ago, there's a lot of warning signs right now that suggest that, you know, we are probably going to have, you know, a little bit rougher time in the market's here in the near future, right? And it's just it's just a function of, of how things work. And we've had a very, very sharp advance from the March 2020 lows. There's numerous indicators that are starting to kind of pile up to suggest that the recovery and earnings expectations and earnings growth and profit margins and economic growth and all this is now starting to reach towards a peak, right? We're kind of getting to that it's as good as it gets kind of point within a cycle. Now, again, I'll be very clear here. It doesn't mean the market's going to crash, but certainly suggests that we could see a little bit more volatility pick up in the markets here over the course of the next couple of months this summer. Would not be surprising at all. Um, you know, one thing that we've talked about here recently is this issue that we haven't had a 5% correction in the markets for quite some time. Uh, in fact, we haven't had a 5% correction in the market since last summer, which is actually one of the longer stretches in history without having a 5% correction, right? Now, 5% correction at this point sounds like, oh my gosh, market's about to crash, right? We're at 5%. 5% sell-offs are normal in any given market year. They're, they're, it's just part of the cycle up and down, right? It's, it's, as you move higher in prices, prices are going to move up, they're going to move down, they're going to move up again. And 5% correction, completely well within norms. Now, it's going to feel a lot worse when you actually have a 5% correction, it's going to feel a lot worse than it actually is because it's just been so long and we're so complacent about corrections that, you know, we just, you, you, we're not ready for it when it comes. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm losing all my money. No, it's just having a 5% correction. Don't worry about it. But it's just part of the cycle. The other thing to kind of pay attention to also is the volatility index. And, you know, this is a issue that we continue to, to talk about volatility remains extremely suppressed at this point and is something that is a, a hallmark of complacency in markets. And if you go back in history, volatility has this really nasty habit of showing up very quickly. And it just kind of appears out of nowhere. And then you have a fairly sharp sell-off. And if you take a look at kind of the 15-day moving average, and, and if you're watching our live stream right now, you can see that. Um, 
there are points of where this volatility gets extremely compressed and then it explodes. Kind of think about a rubber band, right? You kind of just, you stretch a rubber band as far as you can and then when you let it go, it just snaps right back. That's the way it kind of works with volatility index. We compress it, we compress it. It's like a spring, right? Like coiling a spring. We just keep compressing it until all of a sudden it just explodes in the other direction. And that typically aligns itself with these, you know, sharper downturns in the markets. And again, you know, they can be 5%. They could be 10%. Um, we saw a 20% correction in, you know, by October, November, December of 2018. Um, of course, you had the March 2020 uh, decline. So, I mean, they can be bigger, right? Uh, 5% is kind of that norm, 5 to 10%, somewhere around there. Uh, that's pretty much the norm in any given year, but they could be bigger. And that's kind of an interesting point that, you know, as we talk about, you know, the, the, about technical analysis, this is a, you know, a, 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 an issue to understand is that, you know, with technical analysis, we don't know how big the correction will be. We just know that we'll likely have the environment to have a correction, but you, it, technical analysis never tells you how big it will be. Oh, technicals are saying it's going to be a 5% correction. No, that's not what it is. Technical analysis only tells you that the that the environment is ripe for a correction. That's all it tells you. Doesn't tell you how big it's going to be, and you won't find that out until you're in the midst of it as as you start to go down. Um, Morgan Stanley recently put out their market timing indicator as well, which is now at an all time high, and th that's suggesting that. And, and typically, when you have these very, very high levels, uh, according to their index, which is their market timing indicator, um, that's coincided with bigger peaks in markets. Again, I'm not saying that that's the case here, but, you know, again, when you talk about prices and technicals and these type of things, everything is very, very stretched to the upside. And we've had very, very strong advances in the markets. And in fact, we've got a whole, you know, you can really look across a whole plethora of of indicators ranging from margin debt, which is now at a record high. Um, take a look at growth versus value. That's reversed back to, you know, a, a record. Uh, Fed assets, of course, you know, the, the whole premise of liquidity behind the markets, the stock bond correlation. I mean, just you go down the list, uh, whether it's, you know, negative real earnings yields, uh, record high stock bond correlations, you know, record low dividend yields. I mean, just you pick the you pick the issue, right? It's all suggesting that the markets are very extended, very stretched, very overbought, just no matter how you, how you want to dice it, right? And we can continue to ignore it. And this is what we've chosen to do as uh, a, a society right now is like we don't we, we're just ignoring these things because of this whole idea that simply well the economy's roaring back and the Fed's got our back with all this liquidity, but again the markets are telling you that they are they are they are very ripe with risk, and again it doesn't mean that you have a correction today or tomorrow. Um, when when it happens, it'll happen very quickly. And that's the key point, right? That these corrections will happen very quickly and they'll happen simply because of something totally unexpected. Some exogenous event. Uh, you know, is it, you know, a, a strong inflation reading this week from CPI? Probably not. Because everybody knows we're going to have one, right? The market's already kind of priced that in. 
what they're not pricing in is potentially the Fed coming out next week and saying, you know what, um, we're about to get ready to head to Jackson Hole, and we're really thinking about tapering. You know, we weren't we weren't even thinking about thinking about tapering two weeks ago. Today, we're actually thinking about it, and we're going to start laying that timeline out. That's something the market's not. I'm not saying they're going to do that, by the way, but. I'm just saying it, that's the type of thing that'll upset the markets because the markets aren't counting on that. They're not even thinking. The markets aren't even thinking about the, ta- the thinking about the Fed thinking about tapering. Right? It's that old game. But that's where we are. And again, you know, no matter how you want to look at the various measures, they are all stretched really to an extreme level at this point. That again creates that environment to have a correction in prices. Yeah, and that's healthy, by the way. You know, we, you know, whenever you talk about a correction in markets, uh, everybody's like, oh, he's being bearish, right? Uh, no, it's just corrections are healthy, right? You, you need that correction, A, to provide you a, a better entry opportunity to buy some assets that you would like to own, but two, it works off those ex- excesses and allows the market to reset itself a bit so you can make the next run at all-time highs, right? So corrections are a healthy thing. They're opportunistic. But they're only opportunistic if you were prepared for it before it happened. You know, this is the one fallacy of buy and hold investing. I'm going to buy an index. I'm just going to hold on to it. That's great. Market goes up, you make money. Market goes down, you lose money. But the problem is that since you didn't sell anything when the market was up, you don't have any more money to buy anything when the market's low. So, yeah, you can just kind of ride the markets up and down over time. And, yes, over enough time, you will you win the investing game, right? But you're not taking advantage of the opportunities the market gives you. I want to talk a little bit about Inflation, too, because that's, that is the big topic. This week, we're going to be looking at some CPI numbers, and they're going to be big this week because of just year-over-year comparisons. We're still dealing with that base effect of PPI uh, and PPI and CPI, looking at this time last year when you had the, econ- the economy shut down. Um, inflation was, well, deflation at that point. When we come back, I want to talk about specifically what inflation's potentially telling us about where asset prices are and what it might mean in terms of this idea of a correction in prices. Don't go away. Be right back. Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual Lunch and Learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual Lunch and Learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Real Investment. Investmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. 
back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Uh, just talking a little bit about this idea that, you know, there's a lot of warning signals right now suggesting that, you know, things are ripe for a correction in markets. And this is the one thing that, you know, in fact, there's a CNBC article out this morning talking about how that, you know, markets are only going to go higher from here. Patty, uh, Patty Dom was writing this article and she was interviewing some, you know, financial advisors and, you know, that you're all giving their explanations why, you know, markets are just going to go higher from here. Um, strong economic growth, strong earnings. I mean, all via very viable reasons, right? And and certainly nothing wrong with those reasons as to why markets would go higher because fundamentals are strong right now. Earnings are strong. Um, you know, growth is strong, economic growth. But those are all very temporary. And a lot of it's been incented by a lot of stimulus that is now going away. Right. So we'll see just how strong the economy is over the next couple of quarters when we start getting into year over year comparisons and we have less stimulus in the system. We'll see just how, you know, demand driven the economy actually is. But part of the, the issue right now is also this inflationary problem. And we're talking about this before the break is that we're about to see very strong inflationary numbers, you know, uh, this week. And while the idea is that this inflation is, you know, here, a lot of it's a year over year kind of base effects comparing to this time last year. There is one camp that believes that this inflation is now more sticky, that because of the economic recovery, uh, they're assuming that this economic growth rate of greater than 2% that we've had over the last 20 years, that would somehow magically we've now moved ourselves into an even stronger growth rate cycle for the economy, is going to last, leading to stickier inflation prices. Of course, you know, part of this has to do with shutdowns uh, as well as the supply chain backup, all that. The Fed says that this is probably transient. And a lot of these inflationary pressures will go away once the economy begins to, you know, kind of grind back towards a 2% growth rate. And we, you know, get a lot of these supply chain disorders, you know, worked out, which will happen. Fed's probably right. But in the near term, we do have inflationary pressures that are impacting the markets. Now, they're going to impact the markets in two aspects. One Higher inflation is higher prices for consumers, and if disposable incomes don't keep up with that inflation, that's potentially problematic on the consumption side, right? Consumers have less to spend. But here's the other, here's an interesting thing. So there's two there's two gauges of inflation. There's what we call the producer's price index and the consumer price index. Producer price index is what manufacturers deal with when they are manufacturing uh, goods, products, or services, right? So they have their input cost. That's what it costs them to manufacture a widget. So Brent and I are manufacturing widgets, and the cost of goods for our widget goes up from $1 to $2. And normally, we sell our widget for 2 bucks. So we have a choice to either continue to sell our widget at $2, or we're going to have to mark that price up to $3 to sell it so that we can keep our profit margin, right? So that's how inflation impacts producers that those cost of goods go up in terms of manufacturing their goods products or services and they can either internalize it or they can pass it on that's the interesting stat that we're in right now right now while we're having a a jump in year-over-year cpi we're having a bigger jump in year-over-year producer price inflation now what does that mean 
Well, right now we have the largest deviation in the year-over-year -year rate of change in prices that producers pay versus what consumers are paying, which means that producers are having to internalize a lot more of this inflation than they're able to pass on to consumers. That's going to impact their profit margins. And this is why I've got a, a, a chart in today's article um, that shows this spread between PPI and CPI versus the S&P 500. And whenever you have these very big deviations in the producer prices where they're unable to pass on that inflation to consumers, that typically kind of marks a peak for the financial markets because it starts to impact earnings and corporate profitability. So not really not surprising. We saw this back in 1974, obviously. Um, when we had the big you know, spike in inflation back in the, the 70s that led to the 74 crash. We saw it again at the peak of the dot-com crash. Saw it again in uh, the financial crisis. You know, we saw it in 2011, uh, just prior to the 2012 kind of debt ceiling default manufacturing um, uh, recession that we had back in 2013. Um, Saw it again during the Fed taper tantrum back in 2018, and today you've got the highest deviation in PPI to CPI on record. So again, as we're just kind of talking about this morning, there's just a lot of these indicators that are currently suggesting that things have gotten a little bit out of balance, right? And that we just need to be a little bit more cautious about our investments and where we're allocated and how much risk that we're taking. Because historically, these things tend not to work out very well. And again, we're not talking about a crash. You know, it's, and I want to be really clear about this. I'm not saying the markets are about to crash, so don't go run out and sell everything. That's not my point at all. My point is, is that, you know, we do have a market where the potential for a correction is higher than normal. So we want to be aware of that. And does it mean it's going to happen? No, it doesn't mean it's even going to happen. Market may just keep going up from here. It's very possible, right? Lots of liquidity, lots of stimulus, lots of exuberance in the markets. No doubt about that. All I'm saying is, is there's a lot of evidence that you've got things kind of out of balance that have typically led to a correction in markets. And this is the important thing about technicals. Let me, let me go back and, you know, discuss with you what we wrote about in this past weekend's newsletter, talking about the problem of technicals. What we said in the letter is that the biggest problem is that technical indicators do not distinguish between a consolidation, a correction, or an outright bear market. As such, if you ignore the signals as they occur, by the time you realize it's a deep correction, it's too late to do much about it. Therefore, we must treat each signal with the same respect and adjust risk accordingly. The opportunity cost of doing so are minimal. And that's really kind of the key line of this. You know, think about driving a car down the freeway as an example to your portfolio. So right now, everybody's got their pedals, you know, the, the pedals to the metal, and we're just flying down the freeway, and it is, you know, windows down, top down, hair flying back, you know, out of the, out of the car, if you have hair. Um, it's all good, right? Nothing wrong with it. As long as the road's straight and there's nothing in front of you, you can go as fast as you want with relatively little risk. But inherently, you know that there's risk ahead. And so you don't, <laughs> you don't drive a car as fast as you can, as long as you can, right? Um, 
when you start seeing things like the road might be making a, a curve ahead or there's a flashing yellow light somewhere, you inherently slow down, take your foot off the gas a bit, maybe tap on the brake so that you have more control over your vehicle. Doesn't mean you're stopping doesn't mean you're turning the car around and going back to the house. It just means that you're putting yourself in a position to have more control over your vehicle. And that's all we're talking about in terms of risk management and portfolios, giving yourself the ability by taking your foot off the gas a little bit, reducing some of your risk so you can have more control over your portfolio. Because then when you do have the correction, you have a you have cash available to invest at lower prices that's a good thing right but also when you have the correction it does less damage to your portfolio so you don't start making emotional mistakes by panic selling stuff that really you shouldn't but let's just say that you take your foot off the gas and nothing happens to the markets okay you put your cash back to work you know, you get through this period and the market doesn't go down and the the risk of a correction passes, then you simply put your money back to work. Sure, you give up a little bit of upside, right? So kind of like driving your car as fast as you can down the freeway. Yeah, you took your foot off the gas and so you get to your destination just a little bit later than you were would have previously, but you still get there. And that's the important thing, you get there. And that's the goal of investing is that we all want to get to our goal eventually. And the goal is to get there. But if we keep making very bad mistakes, emotional mistakes, if we start taking on too much risk and not paying attention to, to, to risk controls and we wind up losing a lot of capital, we may not get to our goal at all, which is a far worse outcome than missing a little bit of upside by taking some risk controls in your portfolio when risk is very prevalent. And these are the things that we just don't think about because, again, when you listen to the media, they just simply say, oh, you've got to be invested all the time, right? Every day you read an article on CNBC, it's always about how the market's going to go higher here. Um, you know, that's the problem. We get this confirmation bias. You know, we just start only hearing the things that say, hey, the market's only going to go up. So we start, dis we start not paying attention to the risk. And then, that, and then the risk eventually comes to bite you. And it always does, right? It always does. So again, look, you know, the important thing here is, is we're not saying that, you know, you should go to cash and that you should get out of the markets. I'm not saying that at all. It's just saying, hey, take your foot off the gas a little bit because there's a lot of signs right now that suggest that we're likely to have a bit of, a, a bit of turmoil this summer, right? Could be a little bit, could be a lot, who knows? Markets do crazy things sometimes, but it's better to be prepared for it than not prepared for it at all. Quick break. We'll be back. Don't go away.
listening to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Back to the show this morning. I'm Rose Lance Roberts. So over the over the weekend, you know, one thing I enjoy about social media is I'm always known as a troublemaker. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of like walking into the room and dropping napalm and then walking out watching everybody <laughs> kind of just ignite over it. So over the weekend, um, there was an article out talking about the break-even of electric vehicles. Um to an internal combustion engine, right? So we have this whole movement in you know the country right now about oh we've got to be more green, we've got to do all these things, we've got to do green energy, and you know no matter how you look at this stuff, right? It's, it's, you know we've got to get out of the oil, we've got to get out of our dependence on oil and gas, right? And we've got to be more green, we've got to be more renewable, and that's fine, right? I, I have no problem with renewable energy at all. Except for the fact that it requires a whole hell of a lot of oil and gas production for your renewable stuff, right? Not to mention that, you know, when you start to mine for cobalt and a lot of these other rare earth materials, you kind of strip mine the planet, you're leaching water. I mean, it's all kinds of stuff, right? People were all upset. There was a whole movie out about the side effect of fracking on water supply, but lithium is worse, (laughs) So, you know, this is, you know, these are the things that, you know, we have to take into account. And, you know, there's an interesting graphic out this morning um, in the Wall Street Journal um, talking about the importance of manufacturing in the U.S. And the reason that this is important is because we've moved from, you know, we're all wanting this, you know, growth rate in the economy, right? We want to be a much stronger growth rate in the economy. And, Growth rates of the economy come from things that have a very high multiplier effect in the economy. Manufacturing is that. Manufacturing has about a five times, you know, economic uh, has a an economic multiplier that's five times as high as what you get out of services. Think about think about services for a sec, right? I provide a service. I have very low input. I just you know I go service one person and they pay me to do my job, et cetera, right? And and that's it. It's a service, right? I'm a personal accountant, a personal hairdresser, whatever it is, right? So I go do my job. They pay me. That's the end of our transaction. Manufacturing has massive amounts of inputs, right? If I'm going to to build a widget, right, I've got to go buy all the component costs. I've got to then assemble it. I've got to deliver it. I've got to transport. I mean, just a, a massive amount of inputs. Manufacturing has, which is now about 11% of our economy, has about a 30 to 40% impact on economic growth. It's a very outsized impact on economic growth relative to the size of manufacturing in the U.S. And so this is why you know I'm always railing against these policies that we do that keep forcing companies to outsource labor, right? If you want a stronger economy, figure out a way, things like a $15 hour minimum wage. That sounds great, right? We're going to outsource more labor because of that. You want to unionize, you're going to outsource more labor because labor is the highest cost to any business. We were talking about this with Tom Allen yesterday. 
here on the show. For any business, labor is the highest cost. So if you're going to do things in the U.S. to keep increasing the internal cost of labor, companies are going to outsource it to the cheapest provider of labor, period. Especially when it comes to very repetitive jobs like fulfilling boxes, right? We're going to just stuff stuff into boxes. We're going to outsource that stuff, right? Chip manufacturing, et cetera. We're going to outsource those type of things. Cheapest cost of labor. Um, we wrote an article about this um, on the website last Friday. Uh, if you go to our website, look at Friday's macro review about Janet Yellen and her drive to, uh, to increase offshoring of labor. It's on the website now. Um, but it's interesting because when you talk about renewables and electric vehicles, and all this, it, it's great, right? And I, again, I have nothing against it. I'm completely fine with it. It's all, it's all good. But there's a lot of false narrative behind it because it requires the generation of a lot of oil and gas and coal and other things to support that renewable infrastructure, right? An electric vehicle is mostly made out of what? oil and gas products. Most of the things that you use is made out of oil and gas products. Think about all the things you use on a daily basis that are made out of plastic, materials, um, those type of things. A lot of those have in some shape, form, or fashion an impact from the oil and gas industry. So this drive to kill the industry may sound great in theory, economically because of the, the, of the very outsized impact that the oil and gas industry has on the profitability of the U.S. economy, you might want to rethink that a little bit. You might also want to rethink about it because of the consequence of the stuff that you use on a daily basis. The CEO of Liberty Energy had a very important message over the weekend for North Face. North Face, the outdoor company, right? They're very culturally woke and they decided that they didn't want to have an oil and gas company sponsored on their ware. So the CEO of Liberty Energy had a message for North Face. Here you go. I'm Chris Wright, CEO of Liberty Energy. North Face recently came out against my industry, even refusing to let one of my competitors put their company logo on a North Face jacket. I went through North Face's website of wide-ranging products and I failed to find a single product that wasn't made out of oil and gas. The great majority of North Face's products, jackets, backpacks, outdoor pants, shirts, shoes, hats, etc., are dominantly made out of the oil and gas that we so proudly produce. Globally, 60% of all clothing fibers are made out of oil and gas. For North Face, it is likely 90% or more. So North Face is not only an extraordinary customer of the oil and gas industry, they are also a partner with the oil and gas industry. So thank you, North Face, and you're welcome. So I'm Chris Wright. The, the point about this, though, is that this is the thing that we forget, right? In this very quick move to try to be, you know, side with the administration on being green. Again, don't forget a lot of this by companies is simply kowtowing to the administration, right? And if you'll remember, 
um, when Trump took office, as a good example of this, remember all these companies that came out and they said, oh, we're going to bring, you know, we're going to make America great again. We're going to bring back manufacturing to America. We're going to, you know, we're going to pay employees more. We saw AT&T rush out and give all their employees the thousand dollar checks, you know, one time. Didn't raise their wages, but gave them a bonus. <laughs> um, you know, Carrier Industries, uh, which is a, a case study that we took, it, uh, put in our article last Friday on the website. Basically said, yeah, we'll uh, put jobs back in Indiana and then we're going to outsource, we're going to automate them and we're getting a big tax credit and we're getting all these other benefits. But primarily because our parent company, United Technologies at the time, now Raytheon, is a, has a major number of contracts with the government. We want to keep them happy. So in order for companies to remain in the favor of government, which, again, is where regulations come from on their industry, etc., government holds a lot of power. Companies are very quick to jump on the bandwagon of whatever it is that the government is currently promoting. So, you know, while this idea of, you know, being climate friendly and all this sounds good on the surface, A, it's very costly. B, it doesn't really solve a lot of our long-term problems as it's not really that environmentally green. And, and C, you know, the oil and gas industry, you may not like it, but you depend on it for just about everything in your life. And so before, if you think costs are high now, wait till you destroy the one industry that supplies the majority of those products here in the U.S. for those goods and services. Think about what your costs are going to be then. See, it's always about cost and consequences ultimately, right? But again, you know, don't mistake the fact that a lot of people are jumping on a certain trend or a certain fashion because that's where the government is positioned. If we have a government change in 2024 or even 2022, um, but in 2024, when the next election comes around, if we have a government change that comes in and says, hey, we are all oil and gas supportive, right? A lot of this narrative is going to change in the other direction. That's just the way it works, right? Companies want to garner favor with the with the government, and, and they're always going to, to do that. So um, it's like ESG investing, right? People are just shoving money into ESG funds at this point at a, at a record clip. The problem is most of these ESG funds really aren't all that ESG. They just put a label on it. They call it ESG. <laughs> and they're not really all that environmentally, socially, or government friendly. But it's the meme, right? It's the theme. It's, it's what we're doing right now. So that's where we're putting all of our money. We, we do this repeatedly throughout history. Back in the late 90s, um, we had this whole thesis that we didn't want to invest in descend stocks, right? So we weren't going to invest in companies that did tobacco or gambling or anything like this. Those were the best performing stocks after the fact. <laughs> so, you know... Um, you know, these themes we go through from time to time. And it's always important that the themes are great. And as long as you've got, you're on the right side of the transaction at the time, you can make certainly make some money with it. But don't think that these things are here to stay long term. Because ultimately what drives any of this are two factors. One is profitability. And two is the impact on the economy. And what people tend to forget is the outsized impact that a very small percentage of the economy has on the overall economy from 
a large part of our CapEx spending to a large part of our employment of high wage paying jobs, etc., all belong to one industry. And it's the one industry that we're now deciding to attack for reasons that may not be actually all that fundamentally sound. But they sound good. Sounds great. But if it was such a great service, right, if, if being green was the way to go, why does it require a government subsidy to get people to buy it? See you next time on the next Real Investment Show. See you then. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.